Okay, let me read a passage to you. I'm in uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I'm reading from the uh, Holman uh, uh, Bible version, okay? And it says, But know this. Difficult times will come in the last days. That word difficult can also be translated as as perilous. It can be translated as dangerous. It can also be translated as savage. Okay? Perilous, dangerous, savage times in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. Irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. This week for me was a disturbing, a disturbing week. On, On two different fronts. A year ago, after some allegations were made against the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention for how they were dealing with allegations of sexual abuse and immorality amongst pastors and and other leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention. Last year, in the the annual convention, a, a sexual abuse task force was commissioned. And their task was to investigate these allegations of sexual abuse and, and immorality. And they did. And Sunday, last Sunday, they issued a 400-page report. 400-page report. To include footnotes. I have not read that report. But I know that within the report, it, it cited, it described multiple allegations. 
were pastors and leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention were involved in various forms of sexual abuse, various forms of immorality, and even worse, the Southern Baptist leadership did not properly address the problems. In some cases, they even stonewalled. It's a shame that as pastors and leaders, we are supposed to I'm just I'm speaking from from my own mindset. Call me old fashioned. We're supposed to I'm supposed to protect women and children and the vulnerable in this church. I think it's what pastors are supposed to do. And instead They've caused harm. And they weren't held accountable. For me, and I've said many times, the heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. I do know there's another convention going to be held, I believe in June. I don't know where. And some recommendations have been, will be presented to the messengers at the convention and they will process these and vote on these to incorporate as to how they will deal with any future type of, of allegations. So it was, just a, it was just a sad, disturbing time hearing all this. And... And I wasn't going to whitewash it for you. I, I felt like it was my responsibility to tell you. I just, we got, you know, if we're going to be people of the truth, then we need to speak the truth. Right? So, so I, wanted, I wanted to toss that out there. And, and uh, I don't know, again, I don't know the outcome. Again, I haven't read the report. But I know it's painful and, uh, and hurtful. And, uh, but it's also the truth. Uh, secondly, the other disturbing uh, thing that happened this week was, as many of you know, if you, you watch the news, uh, was uh, the, the shootings in Uvalde. Uh, boy, Tricia will tell you. I think I laid in my bed for I was just I went through just a range of emotions from just sorrow for the for the families. I just can't imagine. And then just the anger. I mean, I, it was just a range of emotions. And I'm still kind of processing that uh, myself. And it kind of goes back to the same thing, right? The heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. It does concern me that, wow, are there any safe places for our kids? There's been school shootings. There's been church 
shootings. I, I, I just... I was even going through my mind, do we need to run through some drills? I, it was just... It was just... It's just... I'm, I'm, my mind's just flooded trying to process all this. And it, it just it just bothers me. And it, it hurts. Be praying for these families. That's what we should be doing. Praying for these families. Loving one another. Supporting one another. It just it just it just hurts. If you need to talk about it with me, I would love to talk about it with you. Maybe you have the questions. We talked about it a little bit in, in our Sunday school this morning. You know, the question that comes up, where's God? Where's God in all this? I'll be glad to talk with you about it. So keep those families in prayer. A man went to a barber shop to have his his hair cut and his uh, and his beard trimmed as the barber began to work they began to talk they talked about many things and and covered various subjects And when they eventually touched on the subject of God, the barber said, I don't believe that God exists. Why do you say that? Asked the customer. Well, just go out on the street and you can see that God does not exist. Tell me, if God exists, why are there so many hurting people? If God exists, why is there so much suffering and pain and evil in this world? I can't imagine a God a loving God who would allow these things to happen. The customer thought for a moment, but didn't respond because he didn't want to start an argument. The barber finished his work and the customer left the shop. Just after he left the barbershop, he saw a man in the street with long, stringy, dirty hair and an untrimmed beard. He looked scruffy and unkept. The customer turned back and entered the barbershop again and said to the barber, You know what? Barbers don't exist. How can you say that? 
asked the surprised barber. I am here. I am a barber. I just worked on you. No, the customer replied. Barbers don't exist because if they did, there would be no long be no people with long dirty hair and untrimmed beards. Like that man outside. Ah, but barbers do exist, the barber said. What happens is, people don't come to me. Exactly, responded the customer. That's the point. God, too, does exist. What happens is, people don't go to This morning, we are going to work our way through a story where a man learned there is a real God who exists. The one true God. The God who wants to be known. So if you have your Bible... We're going to go Old Testament on you. Turn your Bible to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5. And we will begin with verse 1. It's probably on the board behind me, I'm guessing. Okay. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Are you ready? Okay. Now Naaman captain of the army of the king of Aram was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Armenians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. In our passage, we are told about Naaman, who appears to be an exceptional man of his time. He is the captain of the army of Aram. Or better yet, he is the supreme commander of the Syrian army. Described as a mighty man of valor, a courageous warrior, and according to Jewish legend, Jewish legend, Naaman was thought 
to be the one who shot the arrow that killed the wicked king Ahab. Naaman is a leader of men. Highly respected. And in Syria, he is the king's right-hand man. By all human standards, he is a success. He possesses great wealth. He's accomplished everything there is to accomplish. He seems to have everything that life had to offer and all he could ever want. But he doesn't have what he needs. For we are told, but he was a leper. In those days, leprosy was an extremely serious disease with no known cure. It was terminal. If you don't know, leprosy is a skin infection caused by microbacteria. It starts with small patches on the skin, but ultimately it progresses over time to cover large portions of the body. And the thing that makes leprosy so dangerous is that it attacks the nerves. And the nerve damage that it can cause may result in the inability to feel pain. Oftentimes, when we think of leprosy, we picture some terrible, horrible disfigurement, right? And even the loss of body parts. And in time, that could very well happen. But it doesn't happen directly as a result of the disease. Rather, it comes from the untreated injuries and the unnoticed wounds due to one's inability to feel pain. For example, if someone stepped on a rusty nail, or they were burned, or they broke a bone, they wouldn't realize something was wrong until the infection set in. And it was too late. That's why it was terminal. But not only that, it was very isolating in nature because those with leprosy were often stigmatized and ostracized by the rest of society. For example, 
the Jews considered those with leprosy to be unclean, actually cursed by God. And for those with leprosy, they were kept at a distance and separated from the rest of society. Apparently, Naaman was in the early stages of leprosy with small patches appearing on his body because he is still able to move around in public and even have an audience with the king. The king knew about Naaman's leprosy. And so did those in Naaman's household. We are told that in the home of Naaman was a young Hebrew slave girl from Israel. We don't know her name. We don't know her age. But we do know that she had been captured, abducted, during a Syrian raid into Israel when she was little. Tragically taken from her family. Taken from her friends. Taken from her home. Apparently a godly home. And now she serves in the house of Naaman. And one day she says to his wife, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. I want to pause here for a moment because there is much to learn from this young slave girl. What happened to her was a tragedy. She had lost so much. Surely, her life did not turn out as she had hoped. Like most Hebrew girls in her day, I suspect she had dreamed of being married one day, raising a family just like her mother and her grandmother before her. That was the hope. That was the expectation. But that's not what happened. She's a slave. And in those days, slaves were nothing more than human property. Less than human. Used as tools like a horse or a mule until they were no longer useful. 
Here is this young slave girl in a foreign land serving in the house of the enemy. And instead of becoming lost in hatred and bitterness, even bitterness against God, eventually she bloomed where she was planted. She bloomed where she was planted and sought to make someone's life better. Out of compassion for others, she told her captors about a prophet of God in the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel known as Samaria. Despite her own difficulties and her own failed expectations, her behavior revealed what she believed. She trusted God. She trusted God. And I think she understood that God is God. He works in mysterious ways. And he has the right to do what he wants. This young slave girl had faith in God. She had confidence in his prophet. And she shared what she knew with Naaman's wife who in turn spoke to her husband. This young Hebrew slave girl set the wheels in motion, so to speak. And then, beginning with verse 4, we are told this. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. Well, sometimes desperate people do desperate things. And on the basis of this slave girl's faith, Naaman approached the king. 
the Syrian king valued Naaman's service. He was the king's right-hand man. So he approved the journey into Israel. Going so far as to write a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman is set. And he possesses what he believes will assure him of healing. First, he would buy what he wanted from Israel's God with gifts of silver and gold and fine clothing. From his pagan mindset, with his 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, Naaman could hire the prophet of God to do whatever he wanted. His second resource was power in the form of a letter from his king. Kings typically got what they wanted and the king of Syria made his desire clear. I am sending my sermon, my sermon, my servant Naaman to you to cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman seemed to have everything he needed for success and he ventured off into Israel. So let's follow along beginning with verse 6. He, referring to Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me? to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see that he is seeking a quarrel with me. The king of Israel, likely Jehoram, gets this letter from the king of Syria and presumably over the next several days, The king of Israel is trying to figure out why the king of Syria would ask him to do something he knows he can't do. I suspect the king of Syria assumed the king of Israel was on good terms with the prophet of God. That's why the letter was sent to the king of Israel. But that wasn't the case. And when Jehoram received the letter, he comes unglued and tore his clothes in anguish. He's thinking 
How in the world can the king of Syria expect me, the king of Israel, to cure someone of leprosy? That's impossible. And he knows it. He's trying to pick a fight. That's what he's doing. Notice that Jehoram says, Am I God? Am I God? And yet the last thing he could think of was to call upon God. Or to reach out to his prophet. All he could read in the letter was a reason for war. The king was totally blind to the hand of God at work. But fortunately, the prophet of God was not. And beginning with verse 8, we are told, it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha, the former protege of Elijah, was the prophet of God in those days. He knew God. He followed God. And he spoke the words God told him to speak. And Elisha tells the king of Israel, send Naaman to me. So Naaman, the supreme commander of Syria, shows up in all his glory with his chariots and likely a small army. And he waits for Elisha to come out. To greet him. Now, in that day and culture, there were unwritten rules in how visits were to be made and how visitors were to be greeted, especially dignitaries like Naaman. So it would have been expected, expected that Elisha would come out to personally greet this great man. That's what Naaman expected. But Naaman did not get what he expected. We are told, beginning with verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him, oh boy, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times 
and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and the far, far, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. I love this. Instead of being personally greeted and honored by Elisha. Naaman is greeted by a lowly messenger with some crazy instructions for healing. And as we read in this passage, Naaman was offended and insulted by this kind of treatment. This prideful man was humiliated, surely thinking, doesn't this prophet know who I am? And if that's not bad enough, I am told to wash in the Jordan River seven times? This prophet wants me to take a bath in a river that is 25 miles away? I could have stayed where I was at and bathed in the Abana or the far, far rivers. Those waters are clean and clear, much better than this muddy river. I'm not lowering myself to that. I'm not going to humiliate myself in that way. Elisha should have come out and showed some miraculous display of God's power, waving his hand over my spot of leprosy. And I would be healed. That's what Elisha should have done. That's what I wanted from God. Naaman felt entitled. He wanted an explanation. He believed he deserved better. He expected that things would happen on His own terms, in His own way. Jumping into a muddy Jordan River was beneath Him. Plus, it made no sense because He saw no connection between a muddy river and His problem. Naaman was humiliated. And so he storms off in a rage. 
I want to say something before we move on. This had absolutely nothing to do with taking a bath in a muddy river and everything to do with simple obedience to God in spite of one's circumstances. That's the truth the humble Hebrew girl understood. And the truth the prideful Naaman failed to understand. And quite frankly, that's what we fail to understand as well. Let's be painfully honest. Like Naaman, we expect God to act in a certain way. Even if our expectations are biblical, we still tend to see them through the filter of our own ideas of how God is supposed to act. Especially on our behalf. And when God doesn't do what we expect Him to do, forgetting that God is God, we find ourselves disappointed and angry. Storming off in a huff. Chances are you know exactly what I'm talking about. Life did not turn out as you had hoped and expected. You asked God for something, something that seemed to be in His will, a request that God could have easily granted if He wanted to. But nothing seemed to happen. It didn't go your way. And here you are left wondering, where is God and what is He doing in your life? Yes, you believe God still loves you. But you're disappointed with Him. Maybe even angry. Because things did not turn out as you had hoped and expected. Was there a failure? Yeah, I think so. But it wasn't God who failed. It's our expectations of God that failed. That's what happened with Naaman. His expectations failed him. And so he stormed off. But the story, thank God, continues, beginning with verse 13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash, 
and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Thankfully, Naaman's servants couldn't let him walk away. They said, if Elisha told you to do some awesome guy thing, like climb the tallest mountain or sacrifice a thousand animals, you would do it. We know you would be willing to do the hard stuff. So why not do this easy thing? Naaman, you are in need. And the only thing you have to lose is your pride. By washing in the muddy river. So encouraged by his own servants, Naaman obeyed the instructions of the prophet of God. And six times... Six times he dipped himself in a muddy river. Six times he did the right thing. Six times he did what he was supposed to do, but nothing happened. He still had his leprosy. It was only in a humble obedience that on the seventh time he experienced a miracle in more ways than one. Let's continue with the story beginning with verse 15. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, and came and stood before him, he said, this is, this is beautiful, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, referring to Elisha, As the Lord lives before who I stand... I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. After his healing, Naaman returns to Elisha and says, Now I know something I didn't know before. Now I know something I didn't even come to learn 
There is only one true God in all the earth. In His moment of simple obedience, doing something that made no sense to Him by washing in a muddy river, Naaman had a personal encounter with God. An encounter he wasn't even looking for. And that's the reality of following God. For you and me, hear me, for you and me, there is an encounter we will never have with God until we humbly submit and decide to obey Him, even when it doesn't make any sense. There is an awareness of God, an intimacy with God, that only comes when we decide we are going to obey. Hours before, Naaman had despised the muddy river. But now, as evidence of a changed heart, he asked for the most valuable thing he could think of. As much dirt as a pair of mules could carry back to Syria. And let me explain what that means. Naaman held a common pagan belief that deities only had power over certain places. And they could only be worshipped on the soil of those certain places. So in his pagan mindset, and granted he has a lot to learn, right? He has a lot to learn to worship the God of Israel. The only true God he now acknowledges it had to be done on a piece of God's land. As evidence of a changed heart, this is how Naaman would honor the one true God. God is God. God is God. He works in mysterious ways. And He has the right to do what He wants. And sometimes, like the Hebrew slave girl, God may put us in a place 
in a situation, in a circumstance we don't want to be in. Or he may send us to a muddy river to do something that makes absolutely no sense. But in humility, we need to obey Him because there's more at stake than we might know. There's something bigger going on behind the scenes. And there's something greater hanging in the balance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your house. Thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your watchfulness over us. Thank you, Lord, for the truth found in your word. Thank you for stories like this. Lord, we love you. Father, I pray that you give us a passion for you. A zeal for the things of God. Give us a hunger for your word. A desire to know you. I pray that Jesus would be our absolute everything. That we would live for you. And that you would do your work through us. Thank you for who you are and what you do. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the God of the muddy water. Thank you. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. Life is hard, isn't it? It can be difficult. It can be confusing. Right? It can leave us with more questions than we have answers. I have a lot of questions. These are hard days. These are tough days. These are perilous times. They're savage times. So maybe you're here this morning and you're asking, okay, God is God. God is God. Where is He? Where is He? He's in the exact same place he was. When he watched his son being viciously beaten to a pulp. 
He's in the same place he was when he watched nails being driven through his, his only son's hands and feet. He's in the same place he was when he watched his only son crucified. Crucified. That's where he was. It's hard, isn't it? It's the truth. It's the truth. God loves us more than we ever know. And he had to watch. He had to watch his son suffer and die. So that you and I might live. I don't understand everything that God does. I don't understand everything that He allows. Who could? I I, I don't. I have a lot of why questions. Right? Why did this happen and that not? I, I have a lot of questions like that. But this, I know that I know that I know. He loves me. And He loves you. For me, the, the questions of, of why, the questions of why that we all have kind of go to the side. And the question of who who am I dealing with becomes front and center? Who? Who was my God? Who was my Lord and Savior? I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with a lot of stuff. Get in line behind me. But I'll still talk with you. Maybe we can work through it together. Maybe you need someone to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He loves you. He died for you. What else could He do to prove how much He loves you by giving His life for you? If you'd like to know Him, I would like to introduce you to Him. Or maybe you're looking for a church home. We're family here. Dysfunctional at times, but we are family. I couldn't wait to get back. I love you people. However the Lord moves you this morning, obey Him. Because you do not know what's at stake. You do not know. Peter took Jesus fishing one day. How did that turn out? He had no idea what was coming after that.
and just simply obeyed Jesus and took him fishing and became an apostle. Just obey him. The Lord moves you this morning. Just obey him. Maybe it's in your seat. Let me uh, let me close this in prayer. I want to pray for our offering. Just to remind you, our baskets are over by the doors. And then I do smell food. I just smell, you got a whiff of it. So something's cooking back there. So let me close. Father, I thank you so much for, again, for bringing us here this morning. We love you, Lord. We love you. Father, I thank you for these people and, and uh, what they mean to you and what they mean to me. I, I love your people. Thank you that we can worship you, Lord, freely. Father, we come to a, a time in our, our worship where we give back just a small portion of what you have richly blessed us with. Father, I pray that you'd bless the gift and the giver, that you'd help us as a body of Christ to use your money, and it is your money, wisely. And Father, for our, our time of fellowship, Lord, I pray to be sweet and uplifting and supportive. Bless the food. Bless those who have brought food and prepared food. Just bless it to our, our bodies. Again, may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.